This is Dan Fleisch, and this is the third and last podcast for Chapter 2 of A Student's Guide to Vectors and Tensors. And this podcast covers Sections 2.7, 2.8, 2.9, 2.10, and 2.11. That sounds like a lot, but if you've looked at the text, you'll know that all of those sections are related to a particular type of vector operation that uses the del or nabla operator that's described in section 2.7. So this short 2.7 section will just describe the operator and then applying the operator to form the gradient will be the subject of 2.8, the divergence 2.9, the curl 2.10, and the Laplacian 2.11. In each of those cases I'll talk about exactly how you use the operator I'll talk a little bit about the physical significance of doing that operation, and I'll show you an example of how it's used. Section 2.7 begins on page 43, and it describes that combining the partial derivatives that were discussed in the previous couple of sections with the vector concepts from earlier sections results in a vector operator, and that operator is called del or nabla, and it's written as an inverted uppercase Greek delta, that is an upside-down triangle, sometimes with a vector hat over it. This section is just about that operator, and as you'll see, that operator tells you to take derivatives of whatever it is that you feed the operator. That could be a scalar field or it could be a vector field, but the del operator means that you're going to be taking partial derivatives of what follows. So if the del operator is used in all those different applications, how do you know which one to do? Well, as it says at the top of page 44, you simply look at what comes after the del. If immediately following the del operator, there's simply a scalar function, you're going to be taking the gradient of that function. But if the dot that you're accustomed to from the scalar or dot product appears after the del, then you're going to be taking the divergence of what comes next. And if there's a cross after the del, it means you're going to be taking the curl. If you run into the del symbol squared without a vector hat over it, that means you're taking the Laplacian of what follows. Each of those operations will be described in the upcoming sections, but first a little bit about the operator itself. You should first of all make sure you're clear on the idea of an operator. For example, the square root symbol, you know what to do. When you see that and you see something under it, you know that that operator symbol tells you take the square root of what's under here. Well, likewise, the del operator tells you to take certain derivatives, and those are shown in equation 2.29 on page 44. Now, this is written as an operator, so this isn't operating on anything yet. It just says the del operator is defined as i hat times the partial with respect to x plus j hat times the partial with respect to y plus k hat times the partial with respect to z, where those are the usual Cartesian unit vectors. So does that mean the result of using the del operator will always give a vector? Well, not necessarily, because as you're going to see in a later section, sometimes you dot this operator with another vector, which means you end up with a scalar result. So just because the operator has a vector form doesn't necessarily mean that the output of the operation is going to be a vector. The last paragraph of this section simply says this operator can work on a scalar field, that is, a spatial array of different scalar values, like the air temperature in a room or the height of terrain above sea level, or this operator could operate on a vector field in which there exists, at each point in space, a vector with magnitude and direction. 
That could be, for example, the velocity of the flow of a stream or an air current or an electric or a magnetic field. The operator itself is simply what's written in equation 229, and the first way we're going to talk about applying that is to a scalar field. That's the subject of section 2.8, the gradient. As it says in the start of section 2.8 on the bottom of page 44, when the del operator is applied to a scalar field, you get the gradient of that field. That gradient is a vector. So even though we're applying the del operator to a scalar field, we do get a vector result. And the vector output of the gradient operation tells you two very important things. The magnitude of the gradient vector tells you at that point how quickly the field is changing over distance, not in time, over distance. And the gradient vector points in the direction in which the field is increasing most rapidly over distance. So the gradient really is a slope finder, if you will, in which it tells you how steep the slope is, that's the magnitude of the gradient, and in what direction the slope is the steepest in the uphill direction. That's the direction of the gradient vector. Now, in the example I just used, I used height of the terrain as the scalar field, but the same concept could apply to a field such as an electric field. The gradient of the electric field tells you how quickly the electric field strength is changing if you move in distance. Likewise, the direction of the gradient of the electric field tells you which direction the electric field strength is increasing most rapidly. So when I use expressions such as slope and the uphill direction, remember, what we're really talking about is the spatial change in the field, and that could represent height, but it could represent some other field that's changing over space. So how do you actually calculate the gradient? It's pretty straightforward. Look on the top of page 45 at equation 2.30. There it says, the grad of the function psi, which I've written out as some authors do as grad, but also as the del operator with its vector hat with psi afterwards, is defined as i hat times the partial of psi with respect to x plus j hat times the partial of psi with respect to y plus k hat times the partial of psi with respect to z. This is the Cartesian version of the gradient. We'll get into cylindrical and spherical later in this section. But this might be just what you expect, because if you look back to the definition of the del operator on page 44, equation 229, if you just feed that operator psi, it drops in in front of the del operator on the left side and into each of the partial derivatives on the right side. So what does that mean? What is the gradient x part? It says it right after equation 230. The x component of the gradient of psi tells you the slope of that scalar field in the x direction. Likewise, the y component of the gradient tells you the slope in the y direction. And the z component of the gradient tells you the slope in the z direction. So clearly, this applies at a particular point in space. And by taking the gradient of the field and plugging in the values for that point, you know how steep the slope is in each of the three directions around that point. If you want to know what's the magnitude of the total slope, that's easy. Just like you find the magnitude of any vector, you square the x component, you square the y component, you square the z component, add them up, take the square root. So once you've got the vector that is the gradient, you can find its magnitude and its direction just like you would any other vector. 
There's an example of this after that. It says, okay, what if your psi function was 5x plus 2y? Now, once again, I do recommend once in a while using a program like Mathematica or MATLAB to look at the function, and I've presented that on the bottom of page 45 in figure 211a. There's the function seen in the side view, and you can see it's a plane, it's tilted, and if you want to know the gradient, you simply take that function, 5x plus 2y, and feed it into the gradient equation. In this case, when you take the partial with respect to x of 5x plus 2y, you just get 5. So the x part of the gradient of psi is 5, and that's in the i-hat direction. Likewise, when you feed it into the partial with respect to y, that partial of 2y with respect to y is just 2, so the y part of the gradient comes out to be 2, and that's in the j-hat direction. There is no z dependence here, so the k-hat part is 0. There's the gradient, 5i-hat plus 2j-hat. Looks like any other vector. And so even though we fed it a scalar field, 5x plus 2y, we get a vector out of the gradient operation. So what do those two components tell you? Like we said earlier, they tell you the steepness of the slope in various directions. Since these two happen to come out constant, doesn't matter where you are in the space, the slope will always be the same. I've actually made a graph of that in the B part of figure 211 on the bottom of page 45. The arrows represent the gradient throughout the center part near the 0, 0 points of that function. Since there is no x or y dependence of the gradient, notice those arrows are all the same length. They're all pointed in the same direction. You may notice that the other lines, the lines running diagonally from upper left to lower right, those are the contours of constant values of that function, and those are perpendicular to the gradient arrows. If you want to know the magnitude of those arrows, you simply take the 5 squared and the 2 squared, add them together and take the square root, and you get about 5.39 over the entire plane. That's described on the top of page 46. Likewise, if you want to know the angle, take the arctan of the y part over the x part. That says the angle from the positive x-axis is 21.8 degrees, and that's about what it looks like in figure 211b. If you're in cylindrical or spherical coordinates, the form of the gradient is somewhat different. You'll still recognize three partial derivatives, but there are some other terms that you need to pay attention to. Look at equation 2.31 on the top of page 46. That's the gradient of psi in cylindrical coordinates. In spherical coordinates, equation 2.32 tells you what to do, once again involving three partial derivatives, but also involving some other terms. And there will be more discussion of those other terms later on. Section 2.9, beginning on page 46, deals with the divergence and you recognize that the del operator is signifying the divergence by noticing that there's a dot. That is the same dot that was in the scalar or dot product described earlier, and when you see del dot, that means you're taking divergence of what comes after it. And what comes after it? Normally, it's a vector field. That is, it is a field of vectors. At each point in space, there's a vector that may have a different magnitude and or a different direction from the vector next to it at a different point in space. The whole idea of divergence is to measure how much that vector field changes over space. Specifically, the divergence describes the tendency of the vectors to either flow into a point or to flow out of a point. So you might say, wait a minute, I understand flow if vectors represent the velocity, say, of particles in a stream. 
But if this is a vector field like an electric or a magnetic field or a gravitational field, what's really flowing? The answer is nothing is really flowing in those cases. But the vectors may still be drawn as little arrows in which the length of the arrows represents a vector of greater magnitude and the pointing of the arrow tells you the direction of the field at that point. So in describing the divergence and the curl, using a fluid flow analogy is often very helpful. Again, what the divergence is telling you is how strongly the vectors in that field tend to flow toward or away from a point of interest. Now, one very handy way to think about this is if a point has a large divergence, it means that the vector field flows more away from that point than toward it. So therefore, any point with a large value of divergence has more material flowing away from it than flowing toward it, and that means that's a source of material. Likewise, if the divergence has a big negative value, it means there's more flow toward that point than away from it, and you can consider that point to be a sink of material. So in the fluid flow case, it's very helpful to think of the divergence as finding the sources and the sinks of the field. Turns out there's a very nice analogy that for electric fields, which is if you consider the source of electric field lines to be positive charge, you would expect that if positive charge exists at some point, that point has positive divergence. Likewise, since electric field lines tend to terminate on negative charge, you would expect a point of negative charge to have negative divergence. And that's exactly what you find. One more fluid flow analogy that you may find helpful for understanding divergence. If you picture the vector field as representing the velocity flow vectors of a fluid, and then imagine sprinkling sawdust on the surface of that fluid, points of positive divergence will be points at which the density of that sawdust decreases. That is, the sawdust tends to disperse from those points, whereas points of negative divergence will be points at which the sawdust tends to gather together and increase its density. Maybe this will be easier to understand with some specific examples. Those are shown on page 47. There's actually three different fields shown here. In figure 212, there's a horizontal vector field in which the vector magnitudes start out on the left side near x equals 0 with a small value, grow larger right around x equals 1 half, and then grow smaller again as x approaches 1. The fields in figure 213 are radial fields, that is, they are pointing away from a central point, but they're very different. Look in the A portion of the figure on the left, and you'll notice that the field lines are smaller. The vector magnitudes are smaller near the central point and then get larger as you move away. In contrast, in the B part of the figure, near the central point, the vector magnitudes are largest, and then they get smaller as you move radially away from the central point. So we've got three different field types here. Let's see what we can figure out about the divergence in each case. First of all, look at figure 212. It's pretty clear that at position 1, since the vector magnitudes approaching that point from the left are small, and the vector magnitudes leaving that point to the right are bigger, you would expect that point to have a positive divergence, more material flowing away than toward. Likewise, for point 2, the field on the right moving away is bigger than the field on the left pointing toward. But in point 3, the vector field pointing at the point from the left is larger than the vector field pointing away from the point on the right. So you'd expect point 3 to be a point 
of negative divergence. Now look down at figure 213. Point 0.4 right in the middle is clearly a point of positive divergence. The vector field is diverging in every direction from 4. Likewise at 5, now remember, even though we don't draw vector arrows at every point in the field, there are still field lines there going right through point 0.5, and by looking on either side, you can tell that they would be larger moving away from the point than toward it, because we said this field is increasing with distance from the origin. So, since the field is diverging away from point 0.5, the lines are spreading out and getting farther away, and they're getting bigger, so they're increasing in the rate of flow, if you will, you would expect point 0.5 to be a point of positive divergence. Now look at the B part of the figure. Clearly, once again, the very center point 0.6, the very definition of divergence. The field is diverging in all directions from that point. Nothing moving toward it, everything moving away, and with large vector magnitudes. But now look at points 7 or 8. Yes, the field is diverging in the sense that the lines are getting farther apart. However, they're also getting shorter. So you might wonder, how can you tell the divergence at a point like 7 or 8? Just because the field lines are spreading out, that's not enough information to tell you that the divergence is positive. Because you also know that the field lines are getting shorter as you move away from the origin. In order to understand that one, we'll actually have to use a mathematical description of that field, take the divergence, and see what we get. This is done on the following page, on page 48, for each of those fields. Before we apply it to the fields, we look at the form of the divergence on the top of page 48 in equation 2.33. There you see that del dot a, the divergence of the vector a, is equal to our del operator, i hat partial with respect to x, plus j hat partial with respect to y, plus k hat partial with respect to z, dotted, that's not just a multiply, that's a dot product or a scalar product with the vector i hat a sub x, plus j hat a sub y, plus k hat a sub z. At this point, you can treat that del operator exactly like a vector where its x component is partial with respect to x, and its y component is partial with respect to y, and its z component is partial with respect to z, and you know how to do scalar products. You take the x part of one times the x part of the other, and the y part of one times the y part of the other, and so with the z. You can justify that, of course, by knowing that i hat dot i hat is one, j hat dot j hat is one, k hat dot k hat is one, but i hat dot j hat is zero, as is i hat dot k hat, and all the other combinations where you don't have the same unit vector in the dot product. So when you do that, you wind up with the partial with respect to x of a sub x, and the partial with respect to y of a sub y, and the partial with respect to z of a sub z. So equation 234 is the divergence of the vector a, and notice that it is a scalar. The i-hats and j-hats and k-hats have gone away when we did the scalar product. So unlike the gradient, which took a vector operator and applied it to a scalar field and gave us a vector result, the divergence takes a vector operator, dots it into a vector, and gives you a scalar result. That's equation 234. What are the terms that make up the divergence? How quickly the x component of a changes in the x direction, how quickly the y component of a changes in the y direction, and how quickly the z component of a changes in the z direction. That's the divergence. Okay, so let's apply that to the fields we looked at on the previous page. We'll start out with figure 212. 
let's assume there that the magnitude of the vector field varies like a sinusoid. That is, the magnitude of A goes like sine of pi x times i hat. So it starts out small at 0, then it gets larger as x goes to 1 half, because the sine of pi over 2 is 1, and it gets smaller as you go to x equals 1, because the sine of pi is 0. So this describes vector magnitudes that start out small on the left, get bigger in the middle, and then get smaller on the right. And of course there's no y or z dependence, because I meant to draw these as constant in those directions. So it's very easy to find the divergence of this field. You take del dot a, which is the partial of a sub x with respect to x, plus the partial of a sub y with respect to y, which is 0, there is no a sub y, and the partial of a sub z with respect to z, again 0. Well, taking the partial of sine of pi x with respect to x is very straightforward. It just gives you the cosine function. When you take the derivative of the argument, the pi comes out front, so you get pi cosine of pi x. What does that mean about what the divergence is at various points? Well, if it's the cosine of pi x, when x has a value of anything in between 0 and 1 half, the cosine function is positive. So it tells you there's a positive divergence on the left half of that figure. But when x equals 1 half and greater, cosine of those values is negative. So the divergence is negative on the right half of that figure. And that's exactly what we expected when we looked at the lengths of the arrows in the figure. Moving on to the radial field of 213a, let's say in this case that the vector field a is increasing as r squared in the radial or r hat direction. So this is written near the bottom of page 48. a is equal to r squared times r hat. And you know that r squared is simply x squared plus y squared plus z squared. Also, r hat is the unit vector x times i hat plus y times j hat plus z times k hat. To make it a unit vector, we divide by its magnitude, which is the square root of x squared plus y squared plus z squared. So that's the unit vector r hat. Now we can write a as r squared r hat as x squared plus y squared plus z squared. That's r squared. And the r hat is the fraction written on the right. Now notice that in the denominator of the fraction is the square root of x squared plus y squared plus z squared. You can divide that into the left term and just get x squared plus y squared plus z squared to the 1 half times xi hat plus yj hat plus zk hat. That's a. Now, you've got to take the derivative of the x component with respect to x. Well, the x component is whatever's in front of the i hat, and that's just x times the term on the left, x squared plus y squared plus z squared to the 1 half. So we've got to take the derivative of that with respect to x. We can do that using the product rule. Remember how that goes. When you have two terms both involving x multiplied together, you take the first term times the derivative of the second, and then you add the derivative of the first term times the second. So that's done here, the very last equation on page 48. First we simply have the left term, x squared plus y squared plus z squared to the 1 half, and then we have the derivative of the right term, which is x. Well, the partial of x with respect to x is 1, so that's the first part of the answer right there. But remember, by the product rule, we have to add the derivative of the first term times the second. The derivative of the first term, we pull the 1 half in front, we subtract 1 from it, so we get 1 half times x squared plus y squared plus z squared to the minus 1 half. Now we've got to take the derivative of the inside. The partial of the inside with respect to x is just 2x, so we write the 2x. 
And don't forget, we've got the x that represents the second term. I put that in front of the 1 half in this case. Notice that in this second term, the 1 half cancels the 2, and the x's multiply together. So the second term, you're left with x squared over the square root of x squared plus y squared plus z squared. So those two terms together give us the partial of a sub x with respect to x. You've got to do the same thing for the y and the z components. And as you might expect, by symmetry, you just get three times the first term. This is written on the top of page 49. So there's three times the x squared plus y squared plus z squared to the one-half term. And then for the second term, instead of having simply x squared in the numerator, you have an x squared from the partial with respect to x, and you get a y squared from the partial with respect to y, and a z squared from the partial with respect to z, and you add all those together. Now you've got x squared plus y squared plus z squared over the square root of x squared plus y squared plus z squared. You can simply divide that in, and you get, for the right term, x squared plus y squared plus z squared to the one-half. Well, you had three of those on the left and one of them on the right, you wind up with four times the quantity x squared plus y squared plus z squared to the one-half. But that term to the one-half is just r, so you end up with 4r. So the divergence is 4r in this case? Exactly. It says the divergence is increasing as you move away from the origin. You may wonder, okay, what happens right at the origin? It looks like the divergence ought to be 0 here if it's 4r and r is 0. But there's a footnote on this on the bottom of page 49, which says actually you can't do what we've just done at the origin because you end up with a 0 in the denominator. There are ways to handle that using the Dirac delta function, which you can find in many vector calculus books. Okay, this only leaves figure 213b, in which the arrows were getting shorter as we moved away. We were curious about what that meant about the divergence. Well, let's assume that this field goes as a equals 1 over r squared times r hat. That is, as r gets bigger, the amplitude of the field gets smaller. It's still directed radially away, but it's getting smaller as 1 over the square of the distance from the central point. We're going to do exactly what we've done previously, taking the derivatives that are specified in the divergence. But first, in the middle of the page on 49, I've written out what a is. 1 over r squared is the left term there, 1 over x squared plus y squared plus z squared. And then there's the r hat term, which is the xi hat plus yj hat plus zk hat over the square root term. Notice that since we now have x squared plus y squared plus z squared and its square root in the denominator, you can multiply those together and get the 3 halves in the denominator. That's the thing we got to take the derivative of. Once again, We've got to take the derivative of the x part with respect to x and add to that the derivative of the y part with respect to y and the derivative of the z part with respect to z. So once again, got to use the product rule. In this case, I think it's easiest to write the function as xi hat plus yj hat plus zk hat times the quantity x squared plus y squared plus z squared to the minus 3 halves power. When you do that and apply the product rule for the x derivative, you get 1 over the quantity x squared plus y squared plus z squared to the 3 halves minus x times 3 halves times x squared plus y squared plus z squared quantity to the minus 5 halves once again times the partial of the inside with respect to x, which is 2x. If you now do the same thing for partial of a y with respect to y and partial of a z with respect to z, add those together. You get what's shown in the last set of equations on page 49. That is 3 over the quantity x squared plus y squared plus z squared to the 3 halves minus 
3 times the quantity x squared plus y squared plus z squared over x squared plus y squared plus z squared to the 5 halves. But if you've got that quantity to the first power in the numerator and to the 5 halves in the denominator, you can divide the numerator and the denominator by that quantity and you will get 3 over the quantity x squared plus y squared plus z squared to the 3 halves for both terms with a minus sign in between. Therefore, the divergence is zero in this case. So looking back at the figure on page 47, figure 213b, the spreading out of the field lines, which would normally indicate divergence, is compensated by the shortening of the field lines if they get shorter exactly as the square of the distance from the center. If that were some other function, they could still be getting shorter, and there may still be positive or negative divergence, depending on how quickly they're getting shorter. But if they fall off exactly as 1 over r squared, and they diverge radially, as is shown in that figure, then the divergence works out to zero, as you just saw. So the bottom line here is, when you're looking for divergence, you have to look not only at the direction of the field, and the apparent spacing between the field lines, you've also got to look at the length or magnitude of those field lines. And to really find out the value of the divergence, you simply have to take the x, y, and z partials that we just went through. Okay, everything we've done so far about the divergence has been in the Cartesian coordinate system, but you may well find that you're doing a problem in which it's much easier to use cylindrical or spherical coordinates. In those cases, you can see the equations to use on the top of page 50. Equation 236 tells you how to find the divergence in cylindrical coordinates, and 237 tells you how to find the divergence in the spherical coordinates. Notice in each case, they still involve partial derivatives with respect to each coordinate variable, but there are additional terms that you have to pay attention to. Section 2.10 is about the vector operation of curl, and this section begins on page 50. Like all the other vector operations in this section of Chapter 2, the curl involves the del operator. You can recognize that the curl is being taken by the fact that after the del comes the cross of the vector cross product. So just as the divergence had a dot for a scalar product after it, the curl has a cross for a vector product after it. We said in the last section that the divergence measures the tendency of a field to flow away from a point. What does the curl measure? It measures the tendency of a field to circulate around a point. The divergence gives you a scalar result, but the curl gives you a vector result because it tells you not only how much the field tends to circulate, it also tells you in which direction it tends to circulate. So it's got both a magnitude and a direction. Therefore, the result of taking the curl is, in fact, like the result of taking any vector product, a vector. To understand regions of high and low curl, once again we're going to use the fluid flow analogy and take a look at the bottom of page 50 at figure 214. If we want to know if the field tends to circulate around a point, what we look for specifically is whether the field on one side of the point is significantly different in either magnitude or direction from the field on the other side of the point. A lot of people think of this by imagining dropping a paddle wheel, that is having a small wheel rotates in the fluid flow on the end of a long axle so you can place the paddle wheel into the fluid flow. If the paddle wheel tends to rotate, then you have found a region of high curl. If the paddle wheel doesn't rotate, then you found a region of low or zero curl. So let's apply that to the three fields shown in figure 214. 
The field on the left has three points called out. If you imagine at point one, the field above that point and the field below that point are in opposite directions, as are the field on the left and the right. So that's going to be a region of high curl. Once again, imagine holding the axle of your little paddle wheel, putting the paddle wheel down on position one. It's going to rotate, in this case, in a counterclockwise direction. What about point two? There, the field above is in one direction, the field below is in the opposite direction. So once again, you can imagine the paddle wheel spinning if you drop it in at position two. In this case, it would go clockwise. And finally, position three, once again, field is different above and below. This would again be a region of high curl. Now look at the middle part of the figure. There's another field that's shown being fairly uniform and to the right on the top, then switching to moving to the left, and then decreasing in amplitude as you move down. If you look at position four, if you imagine your paddle wheel there, the push on the top of the paddle wheel due to the field above it is going to be a little stronger than the push on the bottom. And therefore, that paddle wheel will tend to rotate, in this case, in the counterclockwise direction. Likewise, at position 5, the field above it is to the right, the field below it is to the left. That's also a point of circulation or rotation of your paddle wheel. However, point 6, the field above it is the same as the field below it, and if I drop my paddle wheel there, it's not going to tend to rotate. So that's a point of low or zero curl. And finally, if you look in the C part of the figure, position 7, the field lines are spreading apart there, but if you imagine putting your paddle wheel there, it would not tend to rotate. So I think the paddle wheel analogy is a very good way to find regions of high and low curl. You may wonder, how do you know if the curl is positive or negative? And the answer is the right hand rule. If the field rotates in a way such that if you wrap the fingers of your right hand in the direction of the rotation, your thumb shows you the direction of positive curl. So the right hand rule resolves the ambiguity of the directions. How do you calculate the curl? It's pretty straightforward if you read about the cross product. Take a look on page 51 at equation 238. There we see del cross A, the curl of vector A, is simply our curl operator, i hat partial with respect to x, plus j hat partial with respect to y, plus k hat partial with respect to z, cross the vector i hat ax plus j hat ay plus k hat az. It's handy to write that as a determinant as shown in equation 239, by writing i hat, j hat, k hat in the top row of a determinant, then putting the partials, partial with respect to x, y, and z in the middle row, and then the components of the vector of which you're taking the curl in the bottom row. If you write it that way, you can see that the curl easily expands out to equation 240. So there, the x component of the curl involves the subtraction of two partials, the partial of AZ with respect to Y and the partial of AY with respect to Z, and they're subtracted. There's also a J hat part to the curl and a K hat part to the curl because this does give a vector result. So if we're talking about circulation, what does the I hat, J hat, or K hat part mean? What they tell you is the tendency of the field to rotate in the plane perpendicular to each of the coordinate axes. So for example, the x component of the curl tells you the tendency of the field to rotate in the yz plane that is perpendicular to the x-axis. 
Likewise, the Y component of the curl tells you the tendency of the field to circulate in the XZ plane, and the Z component of the curl tells you the tendency of the field to circulate in the XY plane. Now you may be wondering, how exactly does it work that if I subtract two partial derivatives measures the tendency of the field to rotate in that plane? And actually you can understand that pretty easily by looking at a figure such as 215 on the top of page 52. There I've shown a field in the YZ plane and we're going to look at the X component of the curl. That is the tendency to rotate in the YZ plane. Notice I made the field have an AZ component that's negative on the left and then as I increase in Y, the AZ component becomes positive. Likewise, the AY component starts off as positive below the point and then becomes negative as I move above the point. Because below the point it's pointing towards positive Y and above the point it's pointing towards negative Y. The first term in the curl tells me that if I want to measure the curl for this, I should take the partial of AZ with respect to Y and subtract the partial of AY with respect to Z. Well, let's look at the change of AZ as I move along Y. AZ goes from pointing in the negative direction to pointing in the positive direction, so that's a big positive change. Remember, the change is always the final minus the initial condition, and therefore, in this case, that's a big positive change in AZ. In contrast, if I look at AY, it's in the positive direction at low Z, and as I move along Z, it becomes negative. So the change in AY with Z is negative. And look at what the curl terms are. It's the change in AZ with respect to Y minus the change in AY with respect to Z. And since one of those is positive and one of those is negative, and I'm subtracting them, they tend to reinforce one another. So as you would expect by looking at the fact that this vector field does circulate around the point, that's a point of high curl. Now take a look at the B portion of the figure. In this case, the AZ still goes from negative to positive as I move along Y, but now the AY starts out negative and becomes positive. So there's a positive change in AY with Z in this case. Now when I look back at that first term, change in AZ with respect to Y minus the change in AY with respect to Z, since those are both positive in this case, they tend to cancel each other and that's a region of low curl. As you would expect, if you imagine dropping a paddle wheel onto that dot in the middle of the B part of the figure, it's not going to tend to rotate because those vectors are pushing against one another. So that's the reason that you subtract the partial derivatives that you do to find out how much the field changes from one side of the point to the other and whether those changes tend to circulate around the point. Then in the middle of page 52, you'll find the cylindrical and spherical coordinate versions of the curl, once again involving the subtraction of partial derivatives. And then in the remainder of this section, I address the point that a lot of people seem to think that whenever a field is curving, it must have curl. And there's an example here that will show you that that's not necessarily true. In this example, I pick a field that circulates around the z-axis so I can write it in cylindrical coordinates as having a phi hat component only. Look on the top of page 53, there's my vector. It's k over r, so it's decreasing amplitude away from the origin, and it's got a phi hat component only, which means it's circulating around. Now we're going to analyze this field away from the origin. We're looking at the field where it's curving, but we're not looking at the origin. 
just as in the case of divergence where we had a field that blows up at the origin, we would need to use other techniques at the origin. But we're asking the question, what is the circulation? That is, is there curl in the curving part of the field away from the origin? The fact that it's got a phi hat component certainly says it curves, but as we're going to see, the curl in this case turns out to be zero. First, we'll do the math. On page 53, you'll see the curl of A written out in cylindrical coordinates, and of course the R and Z components are both zero. There's only a phi component here. So you simply wind up only having those terms that involve A sub phi, and they're written out there. And if you look at those two derivatives, the partial of A phi with respect to Z is zero, because A sub phi depends only on R. It does not depend on Z, and remember these are cylindrical coordinates. And likewise, the partial of R A phi with respect to r, when you multiply r by a phi, the r's cancel, you get the partial of k with respect to r, which is zero. So this is a case of zero curl away from the origin, even though the field curves around the z-axis. So how can this have zero curl? To understand that, look at the paddle wheel analogy shown on the bottom of page 53 in figure 216. There you see the field is getting weaker as you move up the page. The center is down below the bottom of the page here, and the fact that the field lines are getting farther apart as you move up the page means the field is getting weaker. Also, the field is curving to the right since we're going around in the phi hat direction. So, look at the paddle wheel. On the left paddle, there's an upward push. On the right paddle, there's a downward push. That's trying to make the paddle wheel rotate. But now, the field is getting weaker as you move up the page. So there's a stronger push to the right on the bottom paddle and a weaker push to the right on the top paddle. That tends to make this paddle wheel circulate counterclockwise. If the field is getting weaker exactly as 1 over R as you move up the page, the weakening field will exactly compensate for the curvature and this paddle wheel will not rotate. When we did divergence, we said you can't just look at whether the field lines are spreading out to determine if there's a region of high or low divergence. You must also look at the magnitude of the field. Similar logic applies to the curl. To determine if a point has curl or not, you can't just look at whether the field is curving. You've also got to look at the amplitude of the field on the opposite sides of the point. The last section in this chapter, section 211, begins on page 54, and it's all about a differential vector operator called the Laplacian. Now, if you're tracking the earlier parts, you realize that a gradient takes a scalar function and turns it into a vector, and the divergence operates on a vector and produces a scalar. So it's reasonable to wonder, can we combine these in some meaningful way? And the answer is yes. That's what the Laplacian is. It's the divergence of the gradient of a scalar function. You can see that written in the first paragraph of the Laplacian section on page 54, where it's del dot, the quantity, gradient of phi, where phi is some scalar function. This is usually written as del squared phi, in which case the vector hat is normally left off the del operator. Sometimes you'll see this written as delta phi, with a Greek uppercase delta, that is a not inverted triangle, and no squared sign in front of the phi, but in fact the del squared phi is by far the more common notation for this. Equation 243 shows you what the gradient function is. 244 reminds you what the divergence is. And you can imagine now taking that second equation and applying it to the first. That is, we want to take 
the partial with respect to x of the x component, and then add that to the partial with respect to y of the y component, and add that to the partial with respect to z of the z component. But the x component of the gradient is whatever's behind the i hat, and that's partial of phi with respect to x. So we're just going to take, when we take the divergence of the gradient, the partial with respect to x of the partial of phi with respect to x. In other words, we're going to take the second partial derivative of phi with respect to x. We're going to add that to the second partial of phi with respect to y and the second partial of phi with respect to z. Those are all shown added together in equation 245, still on page 54. Now you know what the gradient operation tells you. It tells you the direction of the greatest increase of the function and how fast that increase is. The divergence tells you how strongly a vector function flows away from a point, and the curl tells you how strongly the function tends to circulate around a point. So what is it that the Laplacian, that is this set of second partial derivatives, tells you? It turns out, as you might expect, that the Laplacian finds the change in the change in the function. That's what the second derivative is, of course. You can also consider this the change in the slope of the function in all directions from the point of interest. So you say, okay, what possible good is the change in the change? But think of this. Velocity is the change in position with time, and the change in velocity, that is the change in the change of position with time, is the acceleration. And that's sometimes a useful thing to know. Likewise, if you've got functions that have peaks and valleys, if you look at the slope of that function, that is the gradient, as you approach that peak or valley and then transition onto the peak or into the valley, there's going to be a change in the slope when you come up on top of the peak. So this idea of finding the change in the change in the function can be extremely powerful. Now, a good way to understand the Laplacian is this. The Laplacian of a function represents the difference between the value of the function at the point you're taking the Laplacian versus the average value of the function at all the surrounding points. In order to understand how it does that, look at figure 217 on the bottom of page 55. There's supposed to be some function throughout this space, but I've drawn a cube there just to make a set of points that you can see surrounding the central point, which is labeled 0, 0, 0, because I want you to think about the value of the function at the center, 0, 0, 0. We're going to call the value there phi 0. Then there's going to be a value of the function at the top, and at the left, and at the right, and at the bottom, and at the front, and at the back. And we're going to see that the Laplacian represents the difference of the value of the function at 0, that is at the center, from the average of all those points around it. To do that, start by looking at figure 218 on page 56. I've isolated one of the lines through the cube to make this a little easier to see. This is the line going from the back to the front and through point V0 in the middle. There you'll see the phi back point, that's the value of the function behind the central point, and phi sub front is the value of the function in front of the central point phi zero. Now one way to approximate the partial of phi with respect to x for the region in back, that is at point b labeled in the figure, is to write that partial of phi with respect to x is phi zero minus phi back divided by delta x. That is, it's the rise over the run, considering a change only in the x direction. Also, you can look at the partial of phi with respect to x from phi zero forward. There, the rise over the run 
is going to be phi front minus phi zero divided by delta x. I've deliberately put these points on a cube so they are all the same distance delta x from the center point. But the Laplacian doesn't just write the partial of phi with respect to x, it writes the change in the partial of phi with respect to x. That is, partial with respect to x of the partial of phi with respect to x. So to do that, we're going to find the difference between the partial we got at a and the partial we got at b divided by delta x, the distance between a and b. So there you see it written. Phi front minus phi zero over delta x minus phi zero minus phi back over delta x divided by delta x. That is the partial with respect to x of the partial of phi with respect to x. Okay, you've got the delta x's in the denominator there. So a few lines down in equation 246, you'll see this written as phi front plus phi back minus 2 phi 0 over delta x squared. I just gathered up the terms from that equation. That's the partial squared of phi with respect to x squared. What about the partial squared of phi with respect to y squared and z? Those are shown in equations 247 and 248, and the exact same analysis applies, except instead of using front-back, we use right-left, or top-bottom. We said the Laplacian is the sum of those, so we add up the results we got in 246 and 247 and 248. We're going to assume delta x equals delta y equals delta z. Once again, that's why I made it a cube, and they're added on the top of page 57. When you add those together, you get that rather long expression that is equation 2.49, and a little bit of rearranging says del squared phi is equal to some constants, the minus 6 over delta x squared, times that big quantity in square brackets, which has a phi 0 minus 1 sixth of phi front plus phi back plus phi right plus phi left plus phi top plus phi bottom. Well, of course, one-sixth of the sum of all those is just the average of the values of the function all around the central point. So I wrote that in the second line of equation 250 as minus 6 over x squared times the quantity phi 0 minus phi average. So that's one way to understand why the Laplacian, that is that second derivative, the change in the change, gives you the difference of the function at some central point from the average of the function at the surrounding points. By the way, notice there's a minus sign in front, so what that means is if the function at the point of interest is greater than the average, the Laplacian is negative. And if the function at the point of interest is less than the average of the surrounding points, then the Laplacian is positive. So why does this make the Laplacian a peak finder or a concavity detector? Well, think about it. If the value at a point is higher than the value of the function at the surrounding points, then that point must represent a local maximum of that function. Likewise, if the value of the point is lower than the average of the surrounding points, it must represent a local minimum. So what the Laplacian finds for you are the local maxima and minima of the function. Now relating this to the divergence of the gradient takes a little more thought. In order to see that, you should look at a couple of functions. I've got a graph of two on page 58 in figures 219 and 220. In 219, in the A part of the figure, you can see a function that decreases from the origin as 1 over r. In figure 220, in the a part of the figure, there's a function that varies from the origin as minus 1 over r, so in fact that makes a deep valley. 
So here we've got a high peak in figure 219 and a low valley in figure 220. To understand what the Laplacian does, look at the B parts of these figures. In those parts, I've plotted the gradient. There you see the gradient arrows. I'm talking about the little arrows. We'll get to the circles in a minute. As we know, the gradient points toward the peak in the direction of steepest increase. So you see all those arrows pointing up the slope in figure 219 toward the peak. And since in this case, the slope is getting steeper as we near the peak, those arrows are getting longer. Now look at the B part of the figure. We know that the gradient points in the uphill direction. So from the central valley, the gradient is pointing away at all points and it's steepest near it, so the arrows are biggest close in, and then they get smaller as you move away. The circles, by the way, are the contours of constant values of the functions, which are always perpendicular to the gradient. So what does the divergence of the gradient tell you? Well, look back at figure 219b. Clearly, those gradient vectors are converging on the peak. Likewise, in figure 220b, the gradient arrows are diverging from the low point of the valley. So if I take the divergence, I would expect to get a big negative number in figure 219 at the peak and a big positive number in figure 220b at the valley because the gradient vectors are diverging away from the valley and converging onto the peak. So you would expect that the Laplacian would have a big negative value at the peak and a big positive value at the valley. And that's exactly what we said about the Laplacian earlier. So you can understand how a peak finder works by taking the divergence of the gradient. There's a little discussion about this on page 59, and then there's a worked example. In this case, I take a function phi, which is just k over r, some constant over r. So this function decreases as one over r, as you move away from the origin. Once again, we write r as the square root of x squared plus y squared plus z squared, and therefore phi is just k over the square root of x squared plus y squared plus z squared. When we take the Laplacian, we need to take two derivatives with respect to x, two with respect to y, two with respect to z, and add them together. The first derivative with respect to x is the first equation on page 59. The partial of phi with respect to x is minus k times 2x over 2 times the quantity x squared plus y squared plus z squared to the 3 halves power. Canceling the 2's, you get the expression shown on the right-hand side. But we have to take another partial derivative to get the first term of the Laplacian, so that's shown on the next line. The second partial of phi with respect to x squared, again we use the product rule, so first we take the derivative of the numerator times the denominator, and then we take the numerator times the derivative of the denominator. That's worked out in those two lines, and you can see you end up with an expression of two terms, one involving minus k over the quantity x squared plus y squared plus z squared to the 3 halves power, and another term involving 3kx squared over x squared plus y squared plus z squared to the 5 halves power. If you do the same thing for the y term of the Laplacian and the z term of the Laplacian, the first terms turn out to be the same, the second terms are very similar, just substituting y for x and z for x in the one we just talked about. And the addition of all those terms is shown on the top of page 60. Notice that the first term turns out to be minus 3k over x squared plus y squared plus z squared to the 3 halves. 
and the second term has 3k times the quantity x squared plus y squared plus z squared divided by x squared plus y squared plus z squared to the 5 halves. But of course, having that quantity in parentheses to the first power in the numerator and the 5 halves power in the denominator means this is the same as having 3k over that quantity to the 3 halves which is exactly the same as the first term, except it has a positive sign on it. So when you add those together, you get zero. What that says is that a three-dimensional function that has a one over r dependence, the Laplacian is zero everywhere away from the origin. Once again, just as for the divergence and the curl, if you've got a function like this at the origin, you have to use integral techniques. The analysis we've done here does not apply directly at the origin. But at points away from the origin, the Laplacian is zero in this case. You may find that you're working in a coordinate system other than Cartesian and needing to take the Laplacian. So the cylindrical version is shown in equation 251, and the spherical is shown in equation 252. Okay, that's the end of the last section of chapter two. I strongly encourage you to work through all the problems because you tend to understand these things at one level when you read about them and hear about them. You understand them at a different and deeper level when you've actually worked through them yourself. So if they look intimidating, don't worry. Full solutions are available for you on the book's website. So I strongly encourage you to take a shot at these problems. The next podcast will deal with chapter three.